Be Effective podcast is brought to you by Effective Fitness Training. EFT is a performance-driven fitness program designed to improve individual performance. Created by our team of physical therapists, strength conditioning coaches, nutrition specialists, and a team of active and former law enforcement with over 100 years combined experience. EFT is developed for those who want the most comprehensive fitness plan available. Use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 10% off the life of your membership. Welcome to the Be Effective Podcast, episode 44, Mr. Andrew Keith. Andrew is a police officer with 14 years of experience on patrol, nine years on SWAT. He's a firearms instructor, a canine handler, a defensive tactics instructor, a master class IDPA shooter, and a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. In this episode, Andrew makes a very raw case for getting help and counseling when you need it, and how the stress of the job impacts the rest of your life. This is a very deep episode. Hope you guys enjoy it, get a lot out of it. Andrew was willing to open up on this episode. He's a really good friend of mine. He is also a phenomenal resource for law enforcement officers as it pertains to officer safety and the actual job itself. He has a lot of experience. Guys, great episode, great listen, great guy. Episode 44. My friend, Mr. Andrew Keith. Enjoy. Andrew, talk about PTSD. Oh. Um, where, where do I start? Where do you start, right? I think it's the big elephant in the room just because like mental health, right? You talk about mental health. What do people think when you say, man, my mind or my mental health isn't isn't good right now? People automatically think like you're seeing shit that ain't there. You're hearing shit that ain't there. You know, like they think of you in a straight jacket with your hair all wild or they think about you sitting around, you know, with a bottle of jack in one hand and your fucking gun in your mouth with the other. There's no medium mental health or there's no light mental health issues. It's like, oh, you said the word your mental health. Um, you must be schizophrenic. And it's like, no, that's not how this fucking works. You know, like it's, it's not the same thing. And it's, you know, you get cops that are, you know, all these old curmudgeons and shit and everybody's a fucking tough guy, right? Everybody's a fucking tough guy. So they say, yeah, 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 don't bother me, bro. It's like, come on, man. Come on. I mean, logically, right? You get, take your emotions out of it. Take your emotions out of it and your, your constant, your, your ruler and your penis, right? So that we're not dick measuring and having to give this tough guy persona. And let's just use some fucking simple logic, right? So you go through a career. Say you just do 10 years on the street. Like most retirements, 25, 30 years. But after you do some time, you typically go somewhere else, you know, unless you're me and you got, kind of stuck there for 14 years. So through this time, you're going to go to all these dead body calls. You're going to go to all these wrecks where people have been ripped apart. And it's not every day, you know, but it's every few days, maybe all this other shit. You know, you see dead babies, you see dead adults, you see, like I said, people mangled in car wrecks, you work murders, you work shootings, all kinds of shit. I mean, you're constantly exposed to, you know, maybe not trauma that's directly happening to you. And oftentimes, but it's like just using simple logic, like how much of this shit do you think you can see and not be fucked up? <laughs> you know, like it makes no sense if you're like, Oh no, I could go 25 years seeing, you know, a dead body once a week and I'm gonna be fine. It's like, no bro, you're not going to be fine. So what do you think about the people that say, Oh, I'm numb to it. Because how many times have we heard that? How many times? Oh, man, it doesn't bother me. I'm numb to it. Mm, if you'd asked me, well, 
years ago, I'd probably told you the same thing. I'm numb to it. But being emotionless about it is part of it, I guess. It's kind of your original, your OG coping mechanism to try to just be like, this is happening to these people. This is not happening to me. I'm just handling this call, this scene. So it's not affecting me. It's not affecting me. These aren't, these aren't my folks. These are strangers to me. So it's not bothering me. The problem is, is like the way I like to, the, the way I like to illustrate it to people is when you talk about PTSD in, let's say, wartime and cops, right? So we're going to compare them. You're going to compare a veteran who was in Iraq or Afghanistan, right? For the most part, most of your combat veterans think of it like a bucket that's sitting under a spigot. Most of your combat veterans, it's going to be like the spigot is all the way on and then it's all the way off. Then maybe, you know, a couple days later, it's all the way on, all the way off again. You know, it's basically what you're looking at is like shorter bursts of higher trauma, right? So you've got shorter, you got a, usually a lot more trauma because cops aren't getting in gunfights every day. But really, you know, and like I said, deployments vary. So, but by and large, most of your combat veterans, you know, they've got quite a few gunfights taking place over the period of a year, right? So in between those gunfights is a lot of like shit, like boredom, just being fucking bored. Like there ain't shit to do. You know, it's not our turn to go patrol Fallujah today. So it's someone, it's some other platoon's turn, you know, some, some other squad's turn. So you get these shorter bursts of higher trauma. But in the cop world, what you do is that that spigot that's sitting over top of your bucket is just constantly trickling. And then it constantly trickles over a decade or over two decades or over 25 years, which is a quarter of a century. So it has like, you know, if you're a combat veteran and you go out there and you, you know, you get hit with an IED or you get in some gunfights, like, you know, like this shit is fucking affecting me. You know, like, I'm not going to be the same dude who came over here fresh out of fucking high school when I was 18, went to boot camp and, you know, then gets deployed. But as a cop, it's going to be slow and it's going to sneak up on you. You know, it's like, just look at the simple logic of the fact that, you know, cops have a really high divorce rate. They're really high alcoholism rate. Those are two very important signs, very good litmus tests of something may not be right. Like I said, you do that. You do like the two bucket kind of analogy, like combat veterans turning that spigot all the way on, all the way off, all the way on, all the way off. But it's only like a year or two. You know, I'm not discounting their, their PTSD. I'm just saying like, you can get to the same amounts by going two different pathways. If that makes sense. Well, let's kind of dive into why those things like, divorce and alcoholism happen, right? Well, one, it's the nature of the job from my understanding and talking a lot to, to my friends and I've had friends, very close friends who are cops that have gotten divorced. It's kind of one of those things where it's could be a communication issue, which I think is, is, is huge. It could be an event that changed that person, just like you said, and now they're not the same person they were a week ago, whether it's an accident or some type of use of force, or they saw some trauma, whatever the case may be. But what do you think is is one of the biggest? If you had to put one leading factor 
for why cops are getting divorced, what would you say it is? Oh man, I can speak to my own divorces. (laughs) A lot of it, you know, communication is obviously big, right? But communication is one of those things like we'll kind of get into it later is like being able to express what's going on and being able to communicate that effectively to get yourself some relief or some help from your traumatic experiences. I think as far as like divorce, what you see is manifesting into your personal relationships. A lot of, um, you'll see a lot of symptoms like withdrawal, you know, they just kind of cops just kind of withdraw. They come home, they sit on the couch, you know, they kind of almost like you go through the motions, but the emotion is not there. You know, so they're kind of like, okay, well, I know I got to take my kid to a ball game. Well, they take their kid to a ball game. You know, they kind of do what they feel like is expected of them, but they're so used to turning their emotions off to have to try to deal with these things that they're seeing over time that they just eventually get to where it's almost like your emotions don't turn back on. And then you start kind of feeling angry. And then it becomes like, like I used to tell people, man, like the reason, the reason I left being a cop was a lot of the cumulative PTSD type issues. Like I was just angry all the time. Like I was fucking pissed off all the time. It didn't matter what they did. When I say they, I say the command staff, right? Like they could have been like, you got to wear ties again with your long sleeve shirt. And I'd have flown off the handle about it and been mad for three or four days. You know, just been angry about it three or four days. And it's like, am I really mad? Or is pretty much anger the only emotion that I've got left that I didn't turn off or put in the old proverbial box, you know? So it's like, you're just fucking mad. You're mad all the time. And anger seems to be a common theme, especially later on in police careers. I'm going to talk about your three to four year guy. I'm talking about like your five to 10 year guy, you know, your five to 10 year. I mean, I mean, guy proverbially for all you uh, woke folks out there is in you guys, not like, Males, you know, males and females. Right. right. So it was like, you get these officers that, that have been on the street 10 years. And it's like, if they're, if they're kind of pissed off all the time, that's a good, that's a good sign. Like they may need a break. They may need a break from patrol. Like I said, there's no way you can expect as a human being, I don't give a shit how tough you think you are, that you can go through a 25 year career on patrol and not be fucked up with some kind of PTSD. There's no way you cannot see the kind of shit you see if you're a decently working patrolman and not be kind of a little bit fucked up from it. Oh, I agree. What would you say would be the first step in, I guess, I mean, obviously recognizing the issue is extremely important, but what would you say is after recognizing that there is an issue, what would be your next step to helping solve that issue? Well, a lot of it is command staff, right? You got to have command staff that's not just looking to get a promotion to make more money, to have more power. Right. So if you if you read Frederick Nietzsche, you will understand will to power and that a lot of people simply want power over other folks. That's all they want. You know, they have this drive inside of them. They just want to be powerful and they'll step on anybody a lot of times to get there. You know, it's the same way with like the president of the United States, which I'm not a huge Biden fan at all, man. Like, I don't like that guy. I don't really like the presidents in general. Why are they all so old? Why are they all so fucking old? They're all in their 70s and 80s. What do we want to be doing in our 70s and 80s? Most people want to be sitting in, you know, on a beach somewhere in their old Tommy Bahama, freaking uh, Hawaiian shirt, 
sipping you know their favorite adult beverages, relaxing and not thinking about much of anything stressful. But these guys want the most stressful job in the world. Why? Because it comes attached with the most power. So that same will to power drives a lot of, not all, but a lot of command staff. Are they in the position? Because they truly want to make the department better. They want to help the patrol officers or the the normal rank and file. Or are they there because they want that title? They want that power, right? So a lot of it starts there. If you have command staff that actually gives a shit about their people, then they won't leave their people on patrol for 10 consecutive years without trying to give them a break. You need the break. Or resources. Yeah. You will start from you have to you have to you have to get out of the fucking environment. <laughs> you know, like like if you're yeah, yeah. if you're in two thousand four fucking Fallujah, dude, like you're not getting relief until you get out of Fallujah. So there's there's no relief. You can know you're fucked up, but you're still there. And until you get rotated out of that, then once you're rotated out, that's when the resources come into play. And then you've got the whole culture. Like there's so much at work with police officers that, you know, the whole ego, like, oh, you're a tough guy, all this other shit. And then, you know, the culture tells you, you know, don't talk about it. Just, you know, just be tough, man. Just be tough. And it's like you you don't feel comfortable talking about it, especially with other policemen. And then you naturally, as a human being, you don't want to talk to others about your issues if you don't think they relate. And so do you think that a more proactive approach to this or if something was set in place to where the break is there, the resources are available from the beginning of the career, that'll help reduce, you know, the risk of an incident or the risk of divorce or domestic violence or, you know, anything else, right? So do you think that if if there was something put in place that would help alleviate some of these issues that we're seeing. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of mechanisms, you know, it, it's, it's like anything else. Human beings are complex critters, right? We are, we are part of the animal kingdom, but we're not allowed to behave like the rest of the animal kingdom where all we care about, you know, eating, sleeping, shitting and fucking right. (laughs) You know, we're not allowed to just, those can't be our constant drives. We have to get along with other human beings. You literally just described the biological male. Yeah, dude. So it's like, (laughs) you can't, you can't just go through life with, you know, your club over your shoulder, ugh, and you have to do this. So we're quite the complex critter. You you can't really help a policeman whose wife is going to divorce him simply because he works night shift. Right. So we have to, you have to temper as a command staff or as a supervisor, you have to kind of temper how you're going to help these folks because it's a judgment call because, you know, this guy's like, Oh, you know, I've been here a year and a half and I'm on night shift and my wife says she's going to leave me. And it's like to that officer, I would probably say maybe this isn't the job for you, but to a guy who's been there 10 years, it's like, as a, as a captain or, or somebody who is of sufficient rank to actually do something about it, it's like, hang on, bro, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to find you something to do. I'm going to find you a gig that's not patrol. Fuck yeah. It's more, and again, I think people really take the law enforcement profession as an identity, right? Oh, absolutely. And- if, you talk, if you talk to me in pin codes on the phone, I'll hang up on you. 100%. 
boop, red button. You are now hung up on me. And they're like, bro, you hung up on me. I'm like, don't talk to me in 10 codes. Be fucking normal. You have to get that separation, man. And it's just, you know, there. I think as far as like, if you want to talk about putting mechanisms in place, the culture is just one of those things that have to change in individual officers. You have to have guys who are respected, guys who have done, you know, the superhero shit, and they have to stand up and, you know, say, hey, I had a fucking problem, and I had to go see a therapist. You know, and if you think I'm a pussy, right. so what? I don't care. Once you get dudes like that standing up in departments, these guys that are like, you know, that everybody's like, man, I hope this guy never retires. This guy's like, you know, he's the best cop in this department. If that guy starts saying, man, I was having some problems and I went and saw a therapist, dude, and it's helped me out a lot. People are like, holy shit. You know, like it blows their hair back. And they're like, oh, this guy, this is the toughest yeah. bitch in this police department. And, and he had to go see a therapist. Well, man, maybe, you know, maybe when I'm feeling a certain way, I should go see one. I should go handle this. When I go to, you know, a car wreck, you know, where cars caught fire, burned a family of four alive in it. Maybe I should use some simple logic and say, maybe that fucked me up. And maybe I should go talk to a therapist about it. Because a lot of times, man, like what I found when I went to a therapist and dude, my therapist, like I am not anything like her. She's the most super hippie lady I've ever seen in my life. Like <laughs> hippie dippy shit. And I'm like, you know, I tell her all the time, like work your hippie dippy magic on me. You know, it's like, she's super fucking hippie. So I go in there and I talk to her and, and a lot of it is just the unloading, just the unloading of it. So when I left police work for 11 months, a lot of it had to do with, there were, there were things in my head that, I could no longer put away. So before when I'm running patrol, it's like, cool, man, I don't have time to deal with this dead kid. You know, I go. And when I say that, I mean, it's like deal with it personally. You know, like I go to the call, I handle the call appropriately. I get 10, eight. There's another call to go to. There's another something to do. There's something else to take my mind off of it. So it goes in the old proverbial box. The box goes in the top of the closet. I don't look at the box no more. And then you go to the next call and you know, that box starts filling up after a while. And then when I left police work to go do something else for a while, that's when like shit really started falling apart. <laughs> you know, like shit really started coming apart at the scene. I'm aware dude, because you went, cause you went kind of dark on me, bro. Yeah, dude. I disappeared for a while. I mean, luckily I have your number and you know, I was checking on you and you know, you know, obviously talking to Cody and, and making sure you were okay, man, making sure, you know, and then we started talking again and then you, you know, and then you kind of opened up back to me, you know, again, I, ne I never pressed the issue. I was just making sure there wasn't anything I could do for you, man. I'm glad you did what you did. And I'm glad you're able to, to really kind of open up and talk about it because you're not the fucking only one, bro. Like I was seeing a therapist. I need to go back. And I was, I was seeing her once every two months just to get some stuff basically just off my chest. And then, but I mean, dude, one of my best friends, he's a cop here. He goes to a therapist. He's dealing with some shit. It's completely normal to deal with shit in this profession. This profession, again, the biggest threat to law enforcement is law enforcement itself. This profession will fuck you up if you let it. It is designed to yeah. literally fuck you up. It is exactly the same mechanism as the military, right? Like the military is simply there to win wars. And so how do they win wars? Well, they send young guys to die for fucking king and country, you know, whatever your, whatever your form of government. For old men. 
That's why. See, they go and they see these things and they do all this so that the elites can sit back and they don't have to worry with it. It ain't their kids got to go, you know, but somebody's got to go and somebody's got to do it. And you can't, like I, t- like I said before, it's like you, you can't go into a war zone. You can't, you can't go be exposed to all of this trauma for years and not use simple logic and say, maybe, maybe this has altered the way I think about shit. Maybe. When I left, dude, it was like, fuck, man. It was like a lot of the shit I had seen and had to do was no longer controllable. It was no longer able for me to put it in the box and put that box in the top of the closet. This box was open. I didn't open it. But the fact I left police work and there was nothing left to take my mind off of it, it was constant in my mind. Constant. You know, like a, a lot of times you think, well, how, how could somebody just not be able to function? And it's like, well, dude, I mean, when these images are like, I don't know, the way I, the way I kind of describe it to folks is like a carousel. At a, at a fair or, or carnival or some shit, right? So you got a carousel, but on this carousel is images, emotions, you know, sensory perceptions of the event, and they're just going around in my head nonstop. And every time it'll, you know, every few seconds it stops and it like shoves one of the images in your face, and then it goes back to spinning again, and then it shoves another image in, and it just keeps going, like with the whole trooper thing getting Trooper Russell out of his car, like I could still, I could think about that at the time and I could still feel how hot it was. I could still feel the fucking heat from his car being on fire. The Be Effective podcast is brought to you by our official uniform sponsor, Flying Cross. Fitness and combatives training are important for any success of any mission. But if your uniform is not functional, it will impact your ability to perform. Flying Cross is a uniform brand that offers comfortable and functional duty apparel and gear designed and tested by some of the most active and respected law enforcement agencies in the nation. They are built with the innovation and technology you need for high performance. Visit flyingcross.com forward slash EFT and use code EFT20 to receive 20% off any Flying Cross or Vertex products. Tell people that story real quick. Just give them kind of a quick background. So basically, I was a canine officer on the route on, on route to do a, a sniff for an officer that was kind of down the interstate a ways. So I'm clipping down the interstate, you know, I wouldn't say observing the speed limit, but I was not, I was hauling ass. I was trying to get down there. This is a night shift. As I come down, a call comes out. There's a trooper versus a semi in the parking lot of the Sam's club. And I'm like, that's weird. I remember thinking that's, that's weird. How the fuck did a trooper in a, and the 18 wheeler collide at three o'clock in the morning in the middle of Sam's club parking lot. That's odd. And then I start to pull off and I, I see like some smoke and I'm starting to get off my exit. And I'm like, that's weird. And I remember thinking like, is that street sweepers? Like, are they sweeping the inside median of the interstate? There was an ambulance parked that had just rolled up parked in front of the trooper's car. So all I saw was this big square with yellow lights and some like dust or smoke coming up. Cause you gotta remember I'm doing like 95. They can't, they can't get me in trouble for that now, but I'm doing like 95 down the interstate. So I go to get off and when I get off the exit, I can see around the ambulance at that time. So I'm like, Holy fuck, that's a car on fire. And then like, as I'm starting to slow down, I'm like, that's a, that's a trooper's car on fire. That's the trooper. There's the 18 wheeler on the side of the road. So I'm like, Holy shit. So I slam it in park get out. I run like probably about a hundred yards to the car. Cause at this point I'm like, 
that I'm I'm pretty much getting to the end of the exit ramp. So you know how those veer off the interstate. It's a good little run back to the center median wall. And his car's on fire. The uh, ambulance crew had just happened to be headed back. They were an out-of-county ambulance crew, and they were headed back to their county, and it literally unfolded in front of them. He was sitting on the side of the road finishing up a ticket. He had already let the the offender or whatever go with their ticket, you know, and he's finishing up his stuff. Guy in a track trailer falls asleep, veers off the interstate, fucking slams into the ass end of his Crown Vic, and the angle at which the 18 wheeler left the interstate or left the roadway and clipped him, shot him spinning back across the interstate and he slammed in the center median wall. Well, if you know anything about crown Vicks, they're pieces of shit when they're hitting the ass and their fuel tank ruptures and they can catch fire. And that's exactly what happened. So when I roll up this ambulance crew, he's dumping his fire extinguisher because the car's starting to catch fire. And, uh, and we get there and he's he's kind of hung in his seatbelt. Like the trooper's completely unconscious. He's he's I don't know if he's dead or alive. All I knew was his fucking car was on fire. And I'm about to watch this guy cook, right? So I start getting on the radio and basically, you know, me, even in a very highly stressed out, I'm still a smart ass. So I'm like, hey, I need fire first responders here five minutes ago. You know, and they there's some miscommunication with people calling in about where exactly it was on the interstate. So they didn't know. They didn't know where to send the fucking fire department. You know, and I'm like, drive drive westbound on the fucking interstate. It's the only car on fire out here. It's not like there's four, you know, like there's one. Right. You know, but I knew my car wasn't anywhere near them. So there was really no like, hey, look for my police car kind of thing. So my police car is like 100 yards away. So anyways, we're going to getting him out and none of us really have blades on us which which is kind of a big deal. Like, honestly, I can't – I think I had my knife in my pocket, but I never thought to grab it. Uh, it was one of those things, like, I kind of assumed someone else had one because the driver is actually out, and they're trying to, like – they're standing at the door with the ambulance uh, – one of the ambulance crew, and, you know, I'm on the, I'm on the radio. I'm like, you know, hurry up because the fire's starting to go, but it's not, you know, engulfed yet, right? So I'm sitting here like – Hmm, you know, fire department gets here like right now, we're good. You know, and that's kind of my mentality is like, okay, fire department, because you don't want to move him, right? Because you know he's been blasted by an 18-wheeler. So I really don't want to move him unless it gets to the point where it's like, okay, we got to get him the fuck out of here. Fire's too bad. So the fire starts getting really bad. It starts getting to the point where his back seat's now engulfed. And at some point, Freddie, one of the ambulance crew, comes up somewhere with a box cutter I think he got from somebody standing around because there's a whole bunch of like citizens just standing around watching right and we're like we need to get some motherfuckers car and Freddie you know like you start getting into these high stress events and even now man like even after kind of dealing with some of it it's like it's hard to put everything in chronological order because there's just like so much shit going on right so Freddie at some point the ambulance guy he shows up he's got some kind of blade but while, let's see, while he was gone trying to find something sharp to cut him with, like the driver of the 18 wheelers there, and I don't really know who this guy is, but I know like at this point, I kind of almost felt like Freddie had a plan. So I was going to let him execute his plan. I wasn't going to get in his way. The driver's standing there, and I remember the back window when his back seat got engulfed. 
because I'm standing right by the B pillar, right? It blows out on my arm. And I'm thinking like, holy fuck, I'm on fire. So I jump back and I look and I'm like, fuck, we got to do something about this. I don't have a fire extinguisher. So I start unbuttoning my shirt and then I look over, you know, like I'm kind of a, <laughs> kind of a rough dude. So I look over and this, this dude standing there and he's just wearing like a t-shirt. And I'm like, hey, bro, give me your fucking shirt. Like there was no like, there was no like, excuse me, sir. I'm commandeering your shirt. I looked at him. I like pointed at him. I'm like, give me your fucking shirt. And he starts to take it off and I rip it the rest of the way off of him. And I'm trying to like, cause at this point the, the fire starting to come in where the shotgun mount is over the trooper's head. Yeah. Luckily his head, because he's unconscious is hanging forward like it would. And so the fire starting to come in and I'm like, Oh fuck, he's about to catch fire. So I like, I'm taking this dude's t-shirt and I'm like beating the fucking flames back and that goes on for a little while. And then Freddie comes back in. He's got, you know, some, I think he got a box cutter from somebody that was standing around. He cuts the seatbelt. And I just remember Lowell like falling out of the car. And I can't remember, like, I don't remember if I grabbed his shoulders or his feet as they were coming out of the car. But I remember looking down and seeing them classic trooper patent leather shoes, right? As we're pulling him out. And like the fire, bro, literally is like as soon as his old patent leather skids come out of there, the fire's coming over into the floorboard. By the time we laid him on the side of the interstate, his driver's seat was completely flames, completely flames. And then the rounds start cooking off that he's got his car. Right. Yeah, he had like a couple thousand rounds in the trunk. So they start cooking off and they're, you know, they're popping and cracking and all this shit. And then I just remember thinking, man, his fucking shotgun's in there. His shotgun's pointed pretty well right where we're fucking laying him. I mean, we got him away from the fire, but at the same time, you know, being a, being a gun guy, you know, I love shooting guns. I'm thinking like his shotgun is pointed in this direction. So I'm like, fuck. So they're cutting off all of his shit. And I'm like, Hey, keep y'all's fucking heads over him. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, just keep your heads over and keep doing your thing. You know, keep doing your thing. And my mind was like, all right, I'm wearing a vest. So if this fucking shotgun blasts me, I'll be okay eventually. You know, like, yeah, it might crack my ribs and shit. But, you know, I'm like, yeah. will a shotgun go through a vest? I ain't real sure. But these fucking paramedics don't have shit. So I'm like, they're fucked. So I'm like, y'all just stay over top of them. And I just remember like, trying to get them to keep their fucking heads over him. So like, at least they wouldn't get domed by this fucking shotgun. And then my buddy, Steve, who I was in the Academy with, he comes rolling up and Steve's a good dude. He's like, Andrew, what can I do? And I remember just saying, Hey, get that fucking ambulance, which those people, the the ambulance crew were, were busy working. You know, they were treating the trooper and I didn't really ask them or whatever. I'm like, get that fucking ambulance and put it between us and the cruiser because I was like, you know, like when you're sitting there kind of like, am I about to get shot in the back? Am I not? You know, like, eh, I don't want to be surprised with a fucking, you know, double up buckshot in the back, in the back of my vest. Like yeah. I, I just don't, if I can, if with I can the water control way. Yeah. So like Steve freaking drives the ambulance in between us. And at that time, you know, I really started starting to be able to, to get a handle on this. And then they, you know, they whisk him off to the hospital, which he was, he was real bad fucked up. But he made it through, you know, he made it through. He could walk again. I, I can't remember. He was a, he was a pilot. I can't remember if Lowell ever got his pilot's license back. Cause you know, you have to do that FAA physical and you know, they get real mad if you're up there and you got a medical condition, you pass out and crash a plane, you know, like the FAA gets really pissy about that. Yeah. It's a pretty frowned upon. Yes. Um, so do you still talk to him or have you checked up on him at all? Um, yeah. Usually every year when I was on Facebook, which I'm not on Facebook anymore, 
But every year he usually, you know, tells me happy birthday when that kick comes up. And I, I do the same to him. You know, I talk to him from time to time. Um, I actually ran into his brother's a trooper too. I ran into his brother like six years after that. And uh, so, so it was pretty cool. But, I mean, you, you see a lot of that. And at the time, man, like they get him whisked away. And so I'm, I've got the, you know, basic steady adrenaline drip going. Like I'm wound tight a little bit anyway sometimes. And so I'm wound really tight now, you know, and I remember a camera crew from the local news coming up and this dude's popping out his tripod and he's basically in the path of where the 18 wheeler had exited the interstate and actually drove through the grass in between the exit and the shoulder. And I remember lighting into this guy like straight up, just let him have it, you know, just, you know, pretty much just chewing his ass about being in my wreck scene and how he was, you know, he was such a piece of shit. Cause all he wanted to do is have a camera. He didn't actually want to do anything to benefit others. And I mean, just like, bruh. and my sergeant's like, Hey, I need you to go see your Lieutenant back at the building. And actually that was the best thing for me because he was actually, a, yeah. he was actually an army dude, former civil affairs. I think he had deployed a couple of times. And when I get to the building, you know, I'm still like, whew, I'm 10 out of 10. You know, I'm like, we need LT. He's like, I just wanted to get you out of there. Yeah. And two, you're probably not the best person to be authorized to do media relations. No, not at all. Um, Not at all. (laughs) That was, that was some straight one way media relations right there, dude. Like I flipped my shit. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I wasn't really mad. I was just, I had so much adrenaline. And by that time I'd probably, let's see, I've been a cop already like seven years, seven or eight years. So, you know, it was like, anger was it, bro. I can do anything when I get mad. It's like, you get me mad enough, we'll go fight grizzly bears. I don't care. You know, as long as I'm pissed off, you know, if I'm under normal thinking, it's kind of like, uh. so that's kind of like, you know, you, you get to where you just have that one emotion and it's like, it, it benefits you in certain aspects of life, but you know, everything don't, don't benefit from you getting pissed off about it. That's, that's super important. I want to backtrack a little bit. Thank you for that story because I think a lot of people, you know, have no idea about that. And there's obviously a lot of heroic things that happen in, in the law enforcement field that don't get announced by any means. So when you came to, you know, kind of the realization that, you know, you needed, you needed to talk to a therapist, your, your hippie therapist, did she prescribe you any type of essential oils? <laughs> yeah. I rubbed some lavender on my feet. That was good. <laughs> One session. One session. No, I'm just one session, man. <laughs> That's actually how we met because I did a fucking video where I was like, oh, fuck tourniquets. Just rub some lavender on your feet, bro, or some shit like that in my Instagram. And you were like, dude, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. I was like, I was just being an ass. <laughs> yeah, that was the funniest thing that I saw that day. That was that was good. Um, so when it comes to the realization of, you know, cops see shitty things, sometimes they have to do shitty things, necessary, but still shitty things, and you're able to understand why you have to do those things. Do you feel like there is a a point or a transition where training can take over in the sense of you don't want to become too sensitive to the fact of like, cause the job is, is a dangerous job. The job does require physical, uh, you know, it's a physical job. Right? Oh, yeah. The ability to, to understand that, these things are super fucked up and they do affect you. But then the understanding that you may have to do these things, you may have to do 
basically acts of violence or uses of force. However you want to say, I'm, you know, the politically correct term is use of force, which is violence, right? Righteous violence. Righteous justice. Do you feel like that there could be one, there could be an issue where someone is too aware, they understand they might do bad things, which then may not allow them to react appropriately, right? Or optimally. Or do you think that there's a way that this could really benefit in the sense of this could help prioritize certain training in which someone could become better at their job through the idea of being, hey, I know I'm going to have to use force at some point in time in my career. I need to get my ass training because the PTSD could or or future PTSD could stem from not being fucking prepared. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think training helps you to a degree just because, you know, again, humans are very complex critters. So let's say this, right? So let's say you've got Gordon Ryan is a cop. Gordon Ryan is pretty much the king of jujitsu. Jesus Christ. Right? So Gordon Ryan is a cop. I love Gordon Ryan he, for several reasons, mainly because he's a smart ass like me, but he's really good at jujitsu too. So he's the king of jujitsu. Do you think your normal run of the mill, someone pulling away, someone taking a swing at him, you know, half ass. Now I'm not talking about the fights for your life. I'm talking about your normal everyday, which is most of your uses of force where someone's just fighting to get away. How much stress do you think he's going to be under? When someone who is pretty much unskilled, because most of the people that fight the police are fairly unskilled, when they fight him, <laughs> I mean, dude, 1%, he's gonna, half a percent, dude, he's going to be basically like if taking a nap is level one, he's going to be like 1.5. You know, like he is yeah. somebody with his jujitsu skill level versus someone who doesn't know jujitsu and, and is you know, unarmed, they're not swinging a knife at him or shooting at him. It's simply fisticuffs are it. Dude, he's going to destroy this person. And he's like literally going to wrap this guy up, cuff him up, put him in the back of the car, call it a day, go eat a sandwich, go to his use force report, call it a day. I mean, it's, it's not going to be stressful for him. So, yeah, to speak to your point, the the more you reach subconscious competence with whatever skill we're talking about, whether it's fist fighting, jujitsu, shooting, the less internal, like if you think about stresses, all stress is internal, right? Because you're stressed based on how you perceive something, unless obviously something's crushing you. But if you're cool with something crushing you, then it's not very stressful for you, right? So, you know, it's all pretty much internal. So if you don't have that internal stress, then the stress may not be that high. You know, I mean, if you, if you take a GM in USPSA and, you know, you, you force him to get into the old West 40 paces gunfight with a guy. And he knows this other guy has like a two and a half second draw. Like he's not going to be that stressed dude, because he's like, my draw's 0.8. I'm going going to be way ahead. So, so I think the more training you get is always better because anytime you can reach, especially with physical skills, you can reach subconscious competence. Your perceived stress inside yourself is going to be less. That's super important. That's and that's really the definition of why you should train at a higher level. Now we can talk about the standard. We can talk about the certification, which 
I don't even know why anybody even talks about that anymore. Oh, it's, it's, it should be common knowledge that a certification is a piece of paper that is just a liability waiver for your agency, right? And that if you're not training consistently outside of your agency, then you are training, you are going to, there's going to be a point in time where you're going to be not fucked by, by any means, but you're going to be tested and you're going to, something's going to happen. And you're going to realize how much you don't know. I mean, just from a case law perspective, defensive status perspective, a shooting perspective, a driving perspective, fucking anything perspective. If you rely on your agency for anything, anything, you're probably you're probably at a subpar level. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, so. you you talk about expertise, right? And and the the modern science and neuroscience behind expert, expertise. They talk about you know, 10,000 repetitions, right? Well, yes and no. You know, I mean, obviously it's got to be 10,000 focused, you know, worthwhile training repetitions. We can't just go out here, you know, on the range and shoot 10,000 rounds and be like, well, I'm an expert now. But once you get into that subconscious competence and you and you get to that, then it's like there's just so much less stress, it's not as stressful. And the department is going, if you look at departmental budgets, departmental training budgets are consumed from the top down. When, if you really think about it, they should be consumed from the bottom up. I don't need a chief to go to a chief's course on how to be a chief. <laughs> because how do you even know like what a good chief is and what a bad chief is? What's an objective measure of a chief of police? Who knows? But I can tell you what a shooting standard is. I can tell you how fast and how far you need to run. I can tell you all this other shit. I can tell you what skills you need to fight the average person. I can tell you that. Those are objective. I can't tell you how to yeah. be the chiefiest, the chiefiest chief of all chiefs around or the sheriffiest sheriff of all sheriffs around. That's actually a very good point. Now, I do know chiefs that are what I would consider to be a cop's cop, right? They They limit the amount of political influence on policing and they 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 really stick to what policing truly is and the effectiveness of good policing now there's obviously like you know uh what's his name sheriff of polk county the dude that's always on oh, there sheriff grady um, that's his name, his name sheriff grady grady judd, judd or whatever uh yeah, and then, like i mean there's even a chief here for charleston city jam up dude he was diagnosed with cancer in his spine. He just had his leg amputated Jeez. and is now back being chief. He's the he's the kind of guy that would show up. He works out five days a week, shows up, full uniform, duty belt, vest, just the fucking OG, just a cop's cop, right? Again, I don't know how to measure what a good chief is, but I know that one one thing that I I always like to see is is a cop's cop, meaning they're open-minded, they're progressive, they have their officers back. Those those right there, I think, are extremely important. Now, from a leadership standpoint, that's going to vary. I think that if you do those things, that your leadership is really going to speak volumes. Again, I, I would never be a, a chief. I would never be a sheriff. Well, I'd be a chief police somewhere tomorrow if they'd offer Would me. you? I would yeah, come work for you. I would. I would, dude. Because I believe, I firmly believe that that politics has infected police work like a way, way more of an infection than COVID, you know, or like a real infection. <laughs> my 
man. I just can't. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're 100% right. correct. 1.3% that's mortality rate. So that's beside the point, right? So, so politics infects police work. Police work, if you look at it, man, society elects politicians. Politicians make laws. Laws are enforced by law enforcement. So how come every time law enforcement enforces a law, people get all pissed off at us? It's like, we didn't make the fucking law. You voted for the stupid motherfucker that did. Yeah, it's like you elected these asshole politicians that made asshole laws, and now when we enforce them, you're mad at us. You're mad at the police. Why? You elected them, right? It's just like Joe Biden. You mad at gas prices, bro? If you voted for Joe Biden, guess what? You voted for the man who shut down the Keystone Pipeline on day one. Yeah, first hundred days. Like, I'm no economist. I don't trade in commodities on the Fortune 500 level, but I can tell you that more gas availability equals lower prices, less gas availability equals higher prices. And he just did something that made- It's a supply and demand yeah, type. it made less gas, bro. So the prices are going to go up. So it's like, you know- you get that stuff, man, and, and it's like, oh, you know, it's just like police schedules and everything, like command staff and all this stuff. They're always wanting these schedules, and it's like more options is better than less options. But they can't figure out why their patrol shifts are pissed off at them, and they're leaving in droves and all of this. A lot of it has to do with politics. It's infected police. Law enforcement, sheriffs and chiefs should be standing up and saying, we are here to enforce the laws. My officer, you know, like if I was a chief of police, I would have, I would immediately have a press conference. I would immediately have a press conference. And I would be like, look, I'm the new chief. I want you all to know how I plan on running this. I don't want to keep it secret. If my officers abuse you or break the law or anything like that, I'm going to fuck them up. I'm going to fuck them up. They're going to go to internal affairs, lose their job. If it's criminal, they're going to go to prison, whatever. But I tell you what. You're not going to come out here and fight them and not expect a punch in the mouth or two. You're not going to come out here and shoot at them and not expect to get shot by them or at least shot at. We're not going to have this. It's going to be fair and straight down the middle. If they abuse you and they break the law, they're going to be subject to the law just as if you break the law. Not none of this. Well, this protesting group can block the street and this protesting group can't. Right. The law should be enforced equally upon everyone. So if we go out here and we let Black Lives Matter or any of these other groups block the street with their message, then you also have to let shitty things that we don't like and don't agree with, like the KKK, block the street with their message. Because the law is supposed to be equal for everybody, whether you agree or disagree, right? So we we don't want the white supremacy message blocking the street, but we're going to let other groups do it. You can't do that. That's not fairness in the law. What we can do is say, none of you fuckers are going to block the street. We're going to take you to jail because you're interfering with some citizen who's not involved in any of this lawful daily activities. So you can protest. We don't care if you protest. You're first amendment right. You protest. Do what you want. But if you block that street or you loot a business or you do this or that, you're going to jail because at that point you're a criminal. You're not exercising your First Amendment right. You're just a fucking criminal. And if you lay that out there on the front end, man, it's like, how can people get mad at you? Because they know what to expect. So let me ask you this. I think, I think why people get so amped up, let's just say amped up, you know, about the political figures, legislators making the laws and then cops enforcing those laws is that, of course, people don't agree with certain laws. 
Now, of course, there's discretion, mm-hmm. right? We're not going down that road. But I think with the recent being of like mandates, right? Like the like the mask mandates or first off, first and foremost, I'm going to say this. I don't know a single cop personally that has enforced any type of COVID anything. And I know a lot of cops. I don't know one. I don't know a single it's one. It's the last mechanism, right? Yes. They depend on cops to be the last mechanism. Like you shouldn't confiscate people's right. guns. I agree. As a cop, I would never confiscate somebody's guns who wasn't a criminal, right? You shouldn't enforce. We've talked about. You this. shouldn't enforce these mandates. You're right. I shouldn't. I don't agree with them at all, and I should use my discretion to not do that. The problem is, why are y'all depending on the very last safety valve? Why don't you just elect assholes who won't do that? Boom. I mean, it's pretty. It's pretty simple. Bingo. It's like don't don't put your lack of research in your candidates and your lack of critical thinking onto the police in general is like, well, y'all should act this way or that way to enforce the law. Y'all should put your family's livelihood on the line. We should take food out. You should take food out of your kid's mouth and close off your kid's back to not enforce these mandates, which I, like I said, I agree. We shouldn't enforce mandates. What we should do ideally is not elect assholes that will make mandates like that. Shocker. Yeah, that's, that's the, dude, it starts at the fucking, starts at the fucking source, right? And so too, I think that our stance, Andrew, we have, I can, I can say this, our, our stance on the second amendment is about a hundred percent equal. I think we agree that any gun laws and infringement, except if you're a fucking violent felon. Absolutely. Like (laughs) these people, oh my God, what drives me crazy is the ones in the 2A and the, the 2A community. And I, dude, I shoot competitively. Like I'm around gun people all the time. Like guns are like, I don't know, 63.5% of my life. So you'll hear these people like felons should get their guns back because they've paid their debt to society. And it's like, clearly you've never dealt with a felon. Like, and clearly (laughs) you've never dabbled in the legal system because first of all, this dude to get a felony has probably committed like, I don't know. If it's not something big like murder or rape or something like that, like like if it's robbery, right? This dude's probably committed ten robberies, and he's finally, finally got convicted of one of them. You know, so it's like, no, he's not going to pay his debt to society. You know, like if you go chop your arm off with an axe, that's a bad decision, Adam. That's a terrible decision. If they can't put your arm back on, I'm sorry, you have to live, you know, doing your arm curls get to girls with one arm for the rest of your life. But those are the long-term consequences of the decisions you made. I can't do anything for you. I'm sorry you chose to you know, murder someone and now you've lost your gun rights. I'm sure you're a great person now. And every time I see you walking down the street, you're practicing your hymns for church on Sunday. But unfortunately, the long-term consequences are you lost your right to firearms. 100%. And... I think you said it best a while ago. It's like, you don't accidentally murder no, somebody. Dude. You don't accidentally commit armed robbery. You know, <laughs> like those things aren't, those things aren't accidents. They, you know I mean? Somebody's <laughs> sorry, speeding bro. and they're like, sir, do you know how fast you're going? Uh, you know, I, I really don't. I honestly believe them. They probably don't. They weren't paying attention. They were, you know, probably maybe going along with the flow of traffic, so to speak, and maybe a little faster than everybody else. And they probably truly don't know what speed they were going. Misdemeanor. Right. 
You know if you fucking rob a gas station. You know if you kill someone. You know if you are hanging out on running trails waiting for some woman you like to come by so that you could drag her in the bushes and commit a rape. You know these things are going to happen. Like these are not accidental. You didn't accidentally murder someone. You didn't accidentally burglarize someone's house. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know this wasn't my TV that I'm carrying out the window. <laughs> Silly me. Well, that's, that's the thing too, man, is, I mean, and again, just be very clear. Like, I'm, I I bought a suppressor from Silencer Co. probably eight months ago now, and I'm still waiting for it. Ridiculous. Yeah, they should do away completely with the NFA, Stupid. dude. If anybody, with today's ammo prices, if you buy a machine gun, you should be able to just go buy one from the store. Good luck keeping it fed. <laughs> because ammo, ammo is ridiculous <laughs> yeah, right now. And it's like, dude, you're not going to keep it fed. Si- or suppressors, there are plenty of perfectly good uses for suppressors there's no there's no way in america they should tell you that you can't have a suppressor there's absolutely nothing in in short barrel guns and all that shit that's on the nfa it's a crock dude it's a it's a it's a crock for the government to make you pay an extra tax because you can still have it it is i mean this is the thing it's all about intent this pen that i'm holding in my hand is it deadlier than a suppressor yeah if my intent is to stab you in the neck with it, it's all about intent. Anything and how many weapons are being used in, I don't know, crimes, knives, cars, shovels, bricks, cell phones. Well, you can look at England, right? So they outlawed all these guns. They, you know, over in England, if you go shoot an Ipswich match in England, you're going to see in the parking lot of these ranges Ferraris, Lambos. Porsches because it's a rich man's game. And what gun control does is it basically affects the disenfranchised or the impoverished more, the lower of the socioeconomic scale. That's probably a better way to say it, right? The lower end of the socioeconomic scale, it robs them of their right of self-defense because you've now taxed it out of existence for them. And it's bullshit. Well, it's just like, you know, again, not to bring up the whole Ukraine thing, but the one thing that doesn't make sense is now they're arming civilians. They're handing out AK-47s. At least that's what, at least that's the latest, right? And why are they doing that? Well, they're handing out guns because now they have to defend themselves against against another country, right? So here they want to take your guns. If something like that were to happen here, I think America would be okay. I think enough Americans. Well, in World uh, War Two, you had the Japanese. It was one of the one of the, either the higher, I can't remember if it was one of the higher ranking Japanese military officials, like generals or whatever their equivalent was, or if it was the emperor of Japan himself. But I remember something, reading something where he basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, that there's no way to invade mainland America because there would be a gun behind every blade of grass. Basically saying, those crazy fuckers got guns. If you go correct. stand on their shores, they're going to completely destroy you. And again, I don't understand why people don't look at history. I mean, it's it's obviously people are trying to change history, but from what we know, any type of country with hefty, hefty gun regulations uh, usually doesn't end up well. There's and 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 again, country you know, Look at a, look at small scale America right now. So instead of having a whole country, let's talk about cities. Look at Chicago, dude. 
I wouldn't go to Chicago because I'd be afraid I'd take a take a wrong turn and I'm basically in you know freaking Fallujah again. It's uh it's worse than Afghanistan, yeah, dude. It's man. like you go to Chicago, Chicago, Anistan over there, or Chirac, whatever people want to call it. You got the, all the cities with the most liberal government that has the most gun control also has something else that's the most, and it's called fucking crime. The laws are only for people that will obey them, really. You know, you're hoping that the mass amount of Americans will obey the law when you create a law. So Memorial Day last year in Chicago, 37 people were shot in one day. Three of those died. That's 37 people in one day were shot in one city. To put that in perspective, I live in Tennessee. We have constitutional carry here, right? Pretty much Tennessee's the patron state of shooting shit. So 37 murders would be a wreck. You're talking a, a one day Chicago total, right? In this city, 37 murders would probably be, I don't know, probably you'd have the old guys going, I can't remember when we've had this many murders. I can't remember. It's, you know, here it's somewhere around, you know, 20 a year on average. If you have anything into the 30s, it's like, holy shit, there's a lot of murders going on. <laughs> you know, like one day in Chicago I, would dude, hit our yearly record here. Freaking New York. Some some of my really good buddies work for NYPD. They're the good ones. They're not doing the fucking bullshit. And they'll send me text messages and they'll be like, yeah, dude, we had, we had, we had. 137 shots fired called just in my, just in my precinct. Yeah, dude. And I'm like, fuck man. Like he's like, I was, so what do you do? He's like, we, we ride out there and you know, it's, it's, it's these, it's these cities that are, are, you know, heavy gun. There's such an obvious correlation between gun control and violence. And it's not, this is the thing we need more cops. It, again, why are we relying on the, last last level defense why not fix where the issue really lies exactly. right that might solve fucking crime and maybe have fucking prosecutors and da's and all the other fucking names they have for themselves and i don't know keep and judges big one keep people fucking behind bars how about that exactly shit? there should be one gun law in all of america there should be one gun law you can have anything you want you can have a machine gun you can have probably anything short of explosives. I don't know because, you know, an accident with a hand grenade, a bomb or, you know, a satchel charge, you know, an accident with that could kill a lot of innocent people. So, you know, I could understand them outlawing right. explosives, nuclear weapons, obviously. It's like, oops, I accidentally had an ND with my nuclear device. Oh, well, the whole South is now useless. Thanks, Bubba. You know, for the next, yeah, for the years. shit, for the next like 2000. <laughs> You know, I'm sorry. The radiation will be gone in 2000 years and y'all can move back in. It'll be okay. You know, but machine guns, suppressors, all that shit. There should be one gun law. You can have anything you want. Any gun you want. You fuck around, commit a felony with that. You're going to prison for life. The end. First offense, life imprisonment. Boom. Done. You don't accidentally commit a burglary. You don't accidentally murder someone. You don't accidentally rob a gas station with a full auto AK. You don't accidentally do these things. You commit a felony with a firearm. Prison for life. Done. Done. And everybody was like, president. Yeah, dude. We don't need all these convoluted laws. You don't need them. Like, when well, you can only have 10 rounds in your magazine, Adam. 
because no one's ever done a reload in less than a second before. Oh, wait, they do it every weekend at USPSA. You know, like realm magazine capacity and all this other stuff is just bullshit. It's, it's just ways they want to control. It's all bullshit. I, you know, again, it's intent. I could, I get, I have a guitar, I have an acoustic guitar sitting across from me. Sitting there, it's pretty, it's nice. Signed by Darius Rucker. Mm, Hootie. Uh, Signed by Hootie, bro. Hootie. Hey, man, he's from Charleston. I take it, I turn it around, and guy by its neck, and I bash somebody in the head with it. Now it's a weapon. Well, imagine this. Imagine, <laughs> Does imagine it, a law comes down, and now you can't have your high E string. You can only have five, five strings, Adam. Five strings. You can't have six strings on your guitar anymore. You got to do away with that high E string because that high E string is deadly. Well, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to install a high E string anyways. So now what? It's like <laughs> if people want to have machine guns and want to go out here and have fun, great. Just don't commit a crime with it. That's all you got to do. And most people won't. Right. It, it's a, it, you know, it's a, it's a pretty simple concept. That really brings up a very good point about, about kind of law enforcement kind of getting, getting shafted by obviously by the media always, but I think it's good, man. I definitely talked to you about this. You know, there are some, some pages like, well, really Joe Rogan in particular, right? He, he has said some things about cops and you know that I've talked to you about this. You've helped me with some stuff, you know, and, and him kind of realizing like he had that one conversation with, I can't remember that guy's name. It was the last podcast he had where he mentioned the police post page, which was super cool. Um, here we go. It was Coleman Hughes, uh, who is a host of conversations with Coleman podcast Forbes under 30. He's, he's a writer, some type of activist. And so basically, you know, he, he kind of talked about like cops shooting unarmed people, but then Joe kind of brought up a point like, well, what's really not talked about is people shooting cops, like the acts of violence against cops. And of course they went through that whole thing. And I, I wrote a whole post about my issues with, with the obvious points he missed and how he collected his data, which he left some major points mm, out. Shocking. Um, like the whole unarmed people. I was like, all right. Um, so they don't have arms or they, anyways, he didn't really define certain things. He didn't make really good correlations. He was just using just the, just very blunt details. Um, but the fact that Joe who has, the largest platform right now in the world was able to kind of bring a point like it's not really talked about, but it does happen a lot. And then that's when he brought up the, the Arizona incident, which I was able to get some insight on that, which was a, a, a man. I'm glad nine officers that were shot were, were, were all okay. Especially the one officer that got shot six times. I think he, I think five rounds hit the vest and uh, one round got him in the shoulder or, or had that like, little peck area right here. You know, it's, it's just kind of a weird time because nobody's really talking about the problems. And I, I think, I think we hit it hard about the political. Well, if you look at a lot of these, um, uh, statistics or general nar- the narratives that are being pushed, they don't make it past surface level thinking. They're designed for people who won't peel the onion. They won't think deep, deeper into something because it's like, it's just like the unarmed, unarmed suspect thing, right? It's like, well, the police, you know, the headline reads police officer shoots an unarmed man. Okay. He shot an unarmed guy. 
to a lot of people, that's shocking. They're like, oh, my God. One guy, because they look at it as like one guy, the cop, had a gun. The other guy, the unarmed suspect, did not have a gun. He should not have shot him. Immediately, it triggers that he should not have shot him. That guy didn't even have a gun. But if we're talking about, you know, we're rolling around on the ground and you're fighting me for my gun and I finally get it freed enough to fire one shot into your head or something like that, or one shot into your body that stops everything, right? I just technically shot an unarmed person who was trying to fucking arm themselves with my gun. So it's like, then I become the unarmed guy. (laughs) You know, it's like, if we start critically thinking in this, you find out immediately, like your bullshit flags go off and you're like, oh, well, that makes more sense now. Even the, in the unarmed category, as it is defined, literally someone without a firearm, right? Because there are certain data collection, they only define unarmed is without a gun. They don't define it with a, with a, a knife or brick or any type of object. They don't define it as such. And they don't clarify. So their data could be skewed from that point right yeah. there. And not only that, the definition uh, of, of that is such a small percentage because he just kept hounding on the unarmed. Unarmed doesn't mean not dangerous. Unarmed doesn't mean not deadly. It just means that they didn't have a gun. And just like you said, doesn't mean they weren't fighting for a gun. So my argument there is, is you know, people always say, oh, well, per... 100,000 population, cops kill, you know, and, and, then it, and then it becomes a race thing, right? But there's a lot of correlations between what happens right there. And you really have to look at crimes being committed and police interactions, right? And so that's a whole other thing. And of, and of course, people will always debate that. And of course, data, law enforcement data, even from the UCR, isn't 100% accurate, right? And I think we have to take into account some of the errors that naturally occur with data statistics are not facts correct statistics are statistics they are, statistics are statistics statistics have error especially when you're using a sample size such as i don't know america uh and you're looking at you know 300 million interactions between the ages of 16 and above right and you're looking at 18,000 or 19,000 agencies consisting of almost a million cops like not everything's accurate because they're First off, we talk about cops and report writing. Oh, ooh. as a supervisor checking reports, it's like, ooh, there are several of my guys I called up and was like, yeah. dude, is English your first language? Like the way they spell things yeah. and things like that. I'm like, come on, dude, your grammatical errors are terrible. Like, take an English class. Bro. That's probably me. I, I have the, I mean, you think about it, bro, cops in the South, like basically, what does it take to be a fucking cop in Tennessee? Like seventh grade education plus, like, dude, it's yeah. the same here. Like it is what it is. But now, may I ask you, does your agency require a college degree? They do not require. They pay you an extra seven and a half percent if you get one. If, if you, you have, have a college If degree. you have one when you come here or if you get one in the process, you get a pay bump for it. Do they give you guys a bilingual pay bump if you can speak multiple no. languages? No. And see, that's, that's one thing I tried to come up with years ago when I was in there. It was like, basically like a man can make some money man or woman, whoever, basically coming up with like a police type university, right? Where you, not a criminal justice degree because criminal justice is bullshit. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help you in police work at all. But, you know, if you learn how to interview somebody, if you learn, you know, the skills required to be a policeman and you go to a 
quote unquote university that strengthens those skills, then you're going to produce a better policeman. And, you know, society kind of gets in a way like a friend of mine, TC, who retired from the FBI. He's an actual learned man. He's got him, I think, two PhDs. He's a smart, he's a smart cookie. Right. And he basically sums it up as like society gets what they pay for. Right. If you want, you know, somebody with the with the old brain horsepower to get a MD or a Juris Doctorate or something like that, somebody with that level of brain power is not going to put forth that kind of effort to get that degree to come make forty thousand dollars a year. You're going to get what you pay for. If you say, hey, we'll give you a twenty percent pay raise if you get a master's degree. Dude, you're going to have cops doing some serious learning. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, if you if you basically if you take your you know your ideal policeman and you say, hey, I want this person to be a jurist doctorate. I want them to be a USPSA grandmaster. I want them to be a jujitsu black belt. I want them, you know, to have all these skills. I want to have some customer service experience so they can talk to people. If you want them to have all that, those that takes time and money for them to get those skills. So if you don't reimburse them with that money, at least you're going to get what you pay for. So if you pay $20,000 a year, you're going to get a low, a lower standard because people who have a law degree aren't going to work for $20,000 a year. They're just not going to do it because it's, it would be stupid of them. They would have to do it. Then you would be depending on the goodness of their heart. Like, Oh, I went to college. I spent 200, $300,000 on this law degree and instead of practicing law where I could probably make that money back in a couple of years and pay off my student loans, I'm going to go be a cop and make $45,000 a year and maybe pay off my student loans. Hopefully by the time I retire and or die. Um, yeah, they're just not going to do it. The, the, the logic just isn't there. Right. Uh, and that's why a lot of people end up what's like three years right now is, is the, is the average, I think. Most agencies, guys are, you know, such a high turnover rate because they get in, they get the experience that they, that they see. And I, you know, again, I truly don't believe you don't know what you're doing until about three years in anyways. Oh yeah. Three years, you can handle the basics. I've always, I've always told people this. And honestly, I thought the same thing as I got into this profession. Three years, I can handle the basics. I can go handle a wreck by myself. I can go handle, you know, public intox or a DOC or these misdemeanors. I can handle that. I can probably get into how to secure a scene on a shooting or something like that. Five years, you can start handling stuff that's a little bit outside the box. By 10 years, every, if you've got 10 consecutive years on patrol at that point, you're probably when your Sergeant shows up, he has nothing to do. It's all relative about where you work and call volume. And if you're a proactive police officer, if you're just, you know, again, I know, cops that have been cops for 25 years and they're it's like like deployments right experience varies <laughs> varies based on exposure that's always always it so um i want to talk about one last thing real quick and it's a it's a conversation that that you can kind of speak to because with your military experience i know you were in the military like 250 years yeah, ago but it's still the same dude. i know you're old but basically it's uh it's military training versus law enforcement training and i, I know that sounds super general there's a lot of people and you've seen the comments too uh, of, well, in, in the Marine Corps or in the army or in the Navy or 
whatever. Thank you for your service. Whatever branch, Coast Guard even. You know, I do feel as if, from my experience, which I don't have any, I have zero military experience. I've, I've been to some military bases. I've trained, with a lot, I've trained with a lot of military guys. And about 99% of them have told me it's a different ball game. The only thing that's very similar is deadly force in the sense of like executing like the actual act of like manipulating a trigger, you know, sometimes tactics are the same. There's still so many different variables that are in there. So in your experience, what would you say are the similarities and what would you say are the differences when it comes to just like use of force training? Now, now when I was in Iraq was like 2003, right? So we, we were part of the initial invasion. So we had certain ROEs and those rules of engagement changed as the war progressed for the next 20 years. Right. So rules of engagement are kind of like the same thing as laws and policies for police. They're the same thing. There's only a handful of rules of engagement. There's thousands of laws and policies for police. Right. So it's, totally different when it comes to to uses of force because you know if you punch an enemy combatant a couple of too many times nobody gives a shit nobody cares like you know it's the military is almost like in my experience and like i said experience varies the military is kind of like did you kill somebody that didn't need to be killed or did you not that's kind of like the big overarching question in the military and why roe's are in place. We don't want to kill people that don't need killing. Law enforcement side is much more gray, you know, because most officers don't get in a whole lot of shootings in their career. Some get in, in some, and some get in more than others. But for the most part, I would say on average, one, maybe two a career for law enforcement, right? So you're dealing with the gray of like, well, this person doesn't need to be shot, but I have to use some type of force to get them into custody where, you know, if you in the Marine Corps, if you're a, you're over here in a deployment and you butt stroke somebody and put zip ties on them, you're probably okay. If you do that in law enforcement, people are going to be like, your sergeant's going to show up or your lieutenant or your captain reviewing it later is going to be like, what the fuck? You butt wrote this guy? Like, what are you, are you kidding me? You knocked out his damn molar? Like, what is? what was he doing? Like, you better have a good explanation. Where over here, it's kind of like, well, you know, he was an enemy combatant. I didn't shoot him. I just whacked him with a rifle and put some zip ties on him. And they're like, good to go. Throw him out there with the rest of them, you know? So it's it's two different missions and they can't really be in the in the aspect of ROEs versus law and policy. They really just aren't similar at all. They're they're totally different. So, you know, while I respect all the tier one dudes, all the Delta Recon Ranger SEALs out there, they can speak to certain skills, you know, things like shooting and fighting and, and all of that stuff. But their ROEs are completely completely different and not under the kind of microscope that law enforcement law and policies are under. You know, if you get a shooting on duty, dude, your entire career goes under a microscope, both by the court of public opinion and a court of law. Right. And of course, 
the court of public opinion is always the first one to throw you to the wolves. Yeah. Policing is changing and people and especially chiefs and command staff need to understand that this is, this is changing. We're in a world of information at our fingertips and they, people are no longer, the court of public opinion is not going to wait six months for you to release an investigation. They're not going to do it. That's been seen. Well, it's just like the hands up, don't shoot thing. That was complete and utter bullshit. I've read the FBI's basic summary of that investigation. It was complete and total bullshit. Hands up, don't shoot, did not happen. He did not have his hands up. And that is proved beyond any doubt, almost, from the ballistic data, from the witness statements. There was even a felon showed up and testified for Darren Wilson. Gave a statement saying, hey, and he basically sat down in his statement from the quotes I read and basically said, I ain't got no love for the police at all. But that cop did exactly what he had to do to survive that. And I mean, dude, that's that's people. People that haven't dealt with felons don't understand how huge that is. Felons ain't got no love for the cops. So for one of them to step up and say, hey, what he did was right. I'm a felon. I hate the police. But what he did was right. And, you know, that's a that's a huge statement. When it comes for guys wanting to go to training, I know when I first got on, I was I was like, oh man, like oh, I'm gonna train with this Delta guy, I'm training with this SEAL guy, I'm gonna train with this, train with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and there was a lot of beneficial information that I received from guys with just military experience. I mean, obviously, you know, some of those guys have been on Lord knows many missions, Lord knows where in the world, doing Lord knows what, right? So the experience they can bring back is extremely valuable now. How it pertains to law enforcement, I'm not doing what they do by any means. So, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that I got back from them was a lot of more of like weapon manipulation, movement, things like that. So it wasn't necessarily like didn't would I say in any better cop uh, in the sense of when it came to just those just those topics, sure. But you know, would you say limited training time, budget, all these things? what would you recommend someone like firearms wise or tactics wise invest in when it comes to trying to better themselves for this profession? When you become a specialist, right? So let's say you're, you're a doctor and you're a heart surgeon, heart surgeons. They specialize in conducting surgeries on the heart. They're not going to repair your ACL they have specialized themselves in one aspect. So if you get like the tier one military guys and, and all those units that we all, you know, know the names of those guys are, are very good at a lot of things. And I would say like, if you want to learn some tactics like CQB tactics, things like that, go to those guys. Cause those guys have done it. They've, they've repped it out. They've, pressure tested it like they've live tested it in reality. And so the tactical part of that, yeah, they know that backwards and forwards, right? If you want to go to a shooting class and this may chap some asses, but I really don't care. Look for a USPSA master or grandmaster. If you just want to shoot a gun and you want to be the best at shooting a gun, there is you go to somebody who specializes and the person who specializes and has put all that work in to be the absolute best with a gun or, and someone may have a crossover, you know, they may have been a cop or been in the military. That's possible too, but you have to have that prerequisite skill in order to be 
a good instructor. You have to be able to do before you can instruct. You can be able to do and not be able to instruct very well, but you have to at least be able to do. So you go to USPSA, GM, or Masterclass Shooter, and you basically say, teach me how to shoot a gun. How you apply that skill, that's when you go to the tactical guy and you say, hey, I've got a whole lot of pistol skill, and I want to figure out how to tactically apply it. Cool. But there's no one, you know, probably your, in general terms, your USPSA Grandmaster is not going to be an expert at CQB. So when you say Grandmaster, right? So kind of explain those terms, what what Master and Grandmaster oh, is. Oh, well, the, in USPSA, you have, and USPSA is the best training you can get for $20. You can find your local club, go pay 20 bucks, and learn how to shoot your gun. There'll be guys of all kinds of skill levels out there that are more than happy to help you out. But USPSA has a classification system, and it's not a one-time thing. You can't just go shoot this one drill really good and be like, oh, you're now a USPSA GM. Congratulations. No, it's a basically you're you have to sit there and increase your percentages. So like I'm an A-class USPSA shooter in limited division. So if you want to look up the rules for limited, basically I shoot a staccato in limited in 40 caliber. Look up the rules, you'll know why. So I'm sitting at 77% of the high hit factor. So a GM is going to be between 95 and 100%. So if I want to be a GM in limited division, I have to get 20% better than what I already am. And so, well, to get there takes a lot of skill. And, And to kind of put that in perspective, I don't know of any police SWAT team or agency or military unit, even a tier one that wouldn't be happier than a pig in shit. If everybody in that unit was a high B class or a class shooter, they would be ecstatic. They would be ecstatic that all their shooters were, were that good. And that's not saying that I'm good or anything else. There's, there's no ego involved in USPSA because it's all percentages, but to have that skill level, and then be able to apply that tactically would be amazing for them because they don't have to worry about at that point when you're when you're kind of a high B class shooter into A class your gun handling is fine like you're you're perfectly safe you're not going to you're not going to rip around down your buddy's leg no you're not probably not going to have a lot of NDs do they happen yes they happen here and there but for the most part a USPSA event is a very safe event everybody's safe with a gun your gun handling's there and you're starting to get into that subconscious competence. And when you, when you put that in your brain and like a GM is just going to, I mean, they're going to shoot as fast as you can blink and you're going to watch them operate a gun. And they're not thinking about, okay, I need to align the sights. I need to press the trigger like this. I need to turn the thumb safety off. I need to reload like this. They're not thinking about, they're not consciously thinking about anything with the gun. Basically their brain is going to be like, when that timer goes off, I need my gun. And then their hand's going to go to gun and they're just going to kind of automatically do it. It's kind of like, and I equate it to people is like, you could tie your shoes while you were on the phone with somebody right now, right? Your wife could call you while you're tying up your boots and you're not going to think about tying your shoes. Why? Because you've been tying your shoes for so many years. You got so many repetitions on that. You don't have to do the little and the rabbit jumps over the log and goes through the hole and makes the bunny. Like you don't have to do that thing like we teach kids. Right. But if you watch a kid, if you watch like a, you know, five, six year old tie their shoes, you can see the brain power being invested in that new task that they're having to do. 
So when you get your shooting skill to that subconscious level, now you've got all this horsepower to think about things like, you know, I should put my gun here. Here's the unknown in this building. I should, you know, cover that. I should watch out for my partner. I should be in this stack with some muzzle awareness. There's there's all of these other things that you can think about that don't have anything to do with shooting because your brain's going to see a stimulus, usually visual in the police world, that says, I need my gun and I need to shoot right now. And then your hands are just going to do it. It's going to be automatic. So, you know, when you go back to the training thing, look for your specialist, you know, and people, and I'll say this right now, and I really, I really legit do not care if this pisses somebody off or chaps their ass. Saying that USPSA or any competitive shooting is not going to help you tactically or the targets don't shoot back or any of that bullshit would be the same thing as if you said, if I go train with Usain Bolt, it won't help me in a foot pursuit. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. It's like saying Usain Bolt could never, bro, he could never run. He could never catch a guy in a foot pursuit because he's not tactical. It's like, dude, that dude would have you caught in 10 steps. Like, he's the fastest human being <laughs> on the planet. So fast. like, <laughs> just because he's running against a clock and he's not running after somebody, it means jack shit. His running style doesn't change, you know? And like I tell people all the time, shooting, shooting is shooting. How you apply it depends on just that, how you apply it. Right. And I did, I don't know if you listened to that, uh, podcast I did with JJ, you need to listen to it. It's, he drops some fucking bombs in that thing. And JJ tells a story about how when he was going through Fletzy and they do, they do a lot of force on force stuff. He basically got a gun. He saw a threat. JJ engaged. He put three rounds in the dudes and the dudes noggin. The dude didn't go down. So he put three more. Yeah. Right. And they were like index, index, index. And they were like, basically, you know, chapping his ass about why'd you shoot him three more times and all this that and the other and then i guess uh the guy who wasn't chapping his ass was like hey man that's uh that's jj rakaza and they were like he's like i don't give a shit who the fuck is that and they're like one of the world's best shooters on the planet <laughs> yeah he, he was like one of the fastest dudes with a gun in the world and the guy was like oh and like of course you know jj's groups were probably like you know fucking golf ball size and and the guy went he got the 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 instructor ended up going to JJ and was like, you know, kind of like apologizing yet was all like, man, I just, I've, we've never had that happen before. And JJ is a cop, right? He has that, he has that DHS background, that law enforcement background. I don't think he was ever on patrol, but he does have that. JJ, wasn't he a federal air marshal with Sinklander and some of those other guys? He was for a while. And then I think they recognized the skill and stuck his ass in an instructor position for a while. Like a lot of it, man, is just like, you know, like with JJ, right? Probably when he shot that, because his skill level is so high, he was operating well within his ability. So he wasn't on the edge, right? So to make to make GM or something like that, competitive shooting is going to teach you to ride the edge. It's going to teach you to push your envelope, push your skill level. Because you can go into a match and nobody cares if you miss. If you miss, you lose. That's it. You just don't get as many points and you lose to somebody else. You fall down in the rankings. That's it. So it's like police shootings, you know, most police shootings could probably be solved with like 0.30 splits, a third of a second split. You go to USPSA, you're going to be trying to run 20s, 0.2, 0.15s faster. You're going to be dangling on that edge. So when you go practice at a faster pace, then when reality comes, you're having to shoot guaranteed shots, but you're still going really fast to the outside viewer. 
because the outside observer is going to be like, holy shit, that was really fast. But to you, if you're so used to operating at a much higher level or a higher speed, that seems slow to you, which means you can guarantee shots, which means we don't, as law enforcement, have a 20% accuracy rating. It's like that video you sent me. So this dude, I don't know who the guy is, but he's like, what distance should I practice at? Well, I should practice at seven yards because statistically all police shootings are within seven yards or some, some shit. Right. So it's like, uh, no, I don't want to just practice at what statistically the limit is. I want to go well beyond that. So it's like, Oh, if seven yards is the seven yards is the, the common distance. Cool. Let's practice at 20 at 25. Right. Like, I thoroughly believe everyone should get out and shoot a pistol at 50 yards and in. Just because if you do that, dude, seven yards is going to seem like you're right up on them. It's like, oh, I can't I can't even miss here. You know, it's like I'm going 10 for 10 back here at 50. I can't even miss here. You know, and I'm on the clock both times. Right. Because Rob Latham even says, like, you know, we've all heard these bullshit sayings, especially in law enforcement military, like slow is smooth, smooth is fast. That's a crock of shit. Throw that in the trash. Right. Speed is fine. Accuracy is final. That's bullshit, too. Right. Because let's see, I went out the other day and I ran a bill drill, which is seven yards. You draw and fire six shots. I ran that in. Let's see, I did three runs. One was like one nine one was my first one. And that's kind of slow for me. And then I had a one eight four, which is pretty comfortable. And then I had a one six seven. And the one six seven is pretty fast for me. Like that's kind of eh, getting on the edge of my abilities. So if it takes you two seconds to draw and shoot me through my eyeball, right? If we're opponents for whatever reason, it's legally justified for us to both kill each other. What, you know, whatever, whatever narrative you have to put in there to make it okay. But me and you are standing seven yards from each other and it takes you two seconds to shoot me through my eyeball, a guaranteed pretty much stopping shot you'll never make it to your first shot because I'll have six in you in around 1.7 seconds. From the holster, of course. Well, so yeah. it's it, that's not like an ego thing. It's just like breaking down the times and saying this is what – It's the science of it. Yeah, it's like this is what someone's capable of. This is what someone who's solely based on accuracy is capable of. So if you can run a clean build drill 175 and you're facing somebody who it takes them a second and a half to get their gun out of their belt, you're already like three-quarters of the way through a build drill before they even get their gun out. And that's once you realize they're going for it, right? Once you realize they're going for it, if you're used to that information processing and you go ahead and get your gun because your brain says, holy shit, this guy's about to draw a gun and shoot me. I need to get mine. And you do it. You run things that fast, then accuracy doesn't matter as much. His super duper accuracy is not fast enough to matter. But then you have conversely, too, if you're going so fast that you're outside your abilities and you miss, you're fucked, too. So you got opposite ends of the spectrum here. So you got to find that middle ground on what you can do in a quick amount of time. You can't take all day to pass these quals. We can't take, you know, eight seconds at 10 yards to shoot three shots like that's just not going to cut it. You can watch any police video right. and see that. Any police officer involved shooting video. Right. Like these guys are shooting fast. So why don't we teach them to shoot fast in the beginning? Yeah. And that's, you know, again, it all starts from the the beginning. It's a it's a mentality shift, right? Especially when it comes to firearms. Like I said, I'm a huge gun guy. I love guns. Um, if we train officers with the goal of just getting them to pass the qual, 
then that's all they'll probably ever be able to do unless they go outside of training or they they take it up on their own. If you train officers to be really good shooters, the qual part will take care of itself. If you're a command staff right now, train your officers to be the best damn policemen they can be. And the liability part, the saving the department from liability, will take care of itself. Training above the standard, the minimum standard, the lowest common denominator training is increasing liability. Absolutely. You know, because there, there is no situation that is lowest common denominator. You're not going to go up to a situation and go, you know what, my qualification is going to work right here. Like this is, this is going to be, watch this, hold my, hold my ass baton. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it's just not, it's just not, it's just not going to happen. There is no situation that's ever occurred in the history of law enforcement that was equivalent to a law enforcement certification. Exactly. And that's, and that's the facts. Dude, um, we've been going after about almost an hour and a half actually over that. So what is the one thing you want to lead the listeners? What's your one word of advice? Read books. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like uh, I don't know. My experience in law enforcement, I would say, always just train to be better. Right? You have the Dunning Kruger effect. Like somebody with a little bit of information thinks they're an expert, and then you go over here to the opposite side, and somebody who really is kind of an expert doesn't really feel like an expert. Right? It's like white belts. Right? White belts in jujitsu get a couple of stripes on there. They're over there teaching their fellow white belts. And it's like, easy, pal, easy, right? And then you got a black belt like my buddy Cody, which, you know, I'm a brown belt and I still feel this way. I think blue belt's the only belt ever felt like I deserved. Purple, I was like, holy shit, I'm not ready for this. Brown, I was like, holy shit, I'm not ready for this. And Cody said the same thing when he got his black belt. He said, I felt like when I got my black belt that my jujitsu journey had just begun. And that's a sign of someone who is developing or has developed a very high skill level of mastery because they never feel like they know everything. They're like, holy shit. I don't feel like I'm where I am. I, I feel like I should be better. So they typically try to train to be better where it's like, just cause you shoot hundred percent on your qual does not mean you're a good shooter. Trust me. I went out and got my ass beat at my first couple of USPSA matches. And I was like, Ooh, I had to check myself before I wrecked myself kind of thing. You know, like, I'm not near as good as I thought I was. So now it's to the point where it's like, even if I grind it out and make GM over the next few years in USPSA, I'm still going to be like, I mean, am I ready for the real thing? You know, am I, am I ready for a a shooting on the street? I, I don't, I don't know, you know? So it's just trained to that higher standard. You know, it's like as a, as a patrol officer, you have to be fit. If you're not, you're putting yourself in danger. Right. I don't believe that we should ever train, that we should ever give officers information or train them in such a way that what we tell them might get them killed ever. Agreed. So I would tell you be fit, be in shape, you're on patrol. Don't get killed because your gas tank ran out. You know, be surgical with your weapons. Know exactly what your shotgun will do at various distances with the ammo you're issued. Know what you can do with a rifle because you get all these statistics of like the the dude that's like wall engagements statistically occur within seven yards. Was like run the numbers, dude. Run the numbers. There might have been a cop that had to shoot somebody at fifty yards, and then there was a whole bunch of them at two and three yards that made that average a certain distance. Doesn't mean nobody ever, no police officer ever had to shoot somebody at fifty yards. 
It just means that most don't. Most ain't all. What about if your shooting's 50 yards? Can you shoot 50 yards with a pistol? If the situation calls for it, you better be able to, or you're kind of you're kind of useless in that situation. You know, the same with jujitsu. Right. You're not a it's the same with being able to do combatives and jujitsu and everything else. If only command staff would listen, officers that shoot really well will shoot less people. Officers that fight really well will fight less people. Right. Your black belt in jujitsu ain't really going to care if the drunk pulls away from him. He's going to be like, come on, dude. Like, I don't want to get my uniform dirty. Come on. Dude. What am I going to do? Like, what? Like, I have three three options that I've trained 50,000 times yeah. in this exact position. Like... I have 150,000 reps in this, you know, with, with these three positions. So it's not like, oh my God, what am I going to do? It's like, hmm, what can I do? Or what should I do here? Like, what's going to be most optimal for this? And I think that's, those, those are really great points. Yeah, dude. It's like, instead of screaming on the radio, calling for backup, they're probably going to, you know, somebody that's like a black belt level jujitsu cop. They're going to be like, come on, dude. Like, come on, don't pull away from me again. Like, I don't want to have to go buy uniform pants tomorrow. Like, come on, man. They're going to give them that extra leeway where it's just like, if you have a really fast draw with a gun and you see some dude who has a gun in his waistband and all of a sudden your gun's out, you're looking through your sights and you're telling him, show me your hands, show me your hands. You're giving verbal commands because you feel comfortable with your firearm. You may give them one or two more chances with a verbal command to comply because you feel comfortable because you don't feel stressed, because you don't feel as much fear. If you know you're shitty with your gun, you may go ahead and shoot. Now, is it legally authorized? Absolutely. I'm not arguing the legality. If it's if it's legal, then you're fine as far as not going to prison. But there's also the moral and ethical part. You don't just shoot people just because you're legally authorized to do so. It's got to kind of hit the legal, moral, and ethical. It's got to hit them all for you to be able to live with it without having to eat that shit later when it comes back up because you're always going to question yourself. You know, you're always going to say, did I do, could I have done something different? If you're any good, that's what you're doing. Could I have done something different? And, and you can't let that eat you up because you did all the training on the front end. And so now when you ask yourself that question, you're like, yeah, man, I, I did. I did everything I could do that. That guy just, he forced my hand. And that's the kind of, it's the kind of mindset you should have when it comes to this kind of training and Andrew, I, I really appreciate your time. You're my boy. Um, thank you for everything you shared and uh, where can people find you? Mm, just go to police post, watch his pages. I'll be in the comment section. There may be a day where I'm no longer on the internet anymore. So there's no, there's no real self promotion for me. Jason, all right, guys, just look up Jason Bourne. No, you him. won't find me, dude. You'll find an old guy with a repaired <laughs> pack who's, you know, trying to make black belt in jujitsu before my freaking spine gives out, and uh, he's trying to make oh, trying to make GM and USPSA before I'm too old to move around anymore. I'll tag him in the post. Uh, his stuff will be in the show notes. So if you guys want to give him a follow, he does. You do post good stuff on your page, man. So um, very beneficial information. So until next time, no problem, brother. Check out the show notes if you want to know where to find Andrew on social media. Thank you for listening. Do not forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. New episodes launch on Monday every other week.